Okay, I want to read you something. This must have been on Mother's Day in, on May 13th, 1965. This is, I'm not making this up. This was in Housekeeping Monthly on how to be a good wife and a good mom. This is priceless. Okay, moms, you listening? Plan ahead even the night before to have a delicious dinner ready when your husband gets home from work. This is a way of letting him know you've been thinking about him and are concerned with his needs. Prepare yourself. Put on some makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair. And be fresh looking. He's been with a lot of work-weary people. Amen. Prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash them up, brush their hair, and change their clothes. If needed, remember, they are his little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. Have a cool or warm drink for him and arrange his pillow and take off his shoes. <laughs> this is great. Over the cooler months, Cindy, you listening? Over the cooler months, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. <laughs> I don't think crack cocaine was out yet, but you wonder if the, if the writer of this was. A, after all, catering to his comfort will bring you immense satisfaction. Amen. Oh, this is great. Let him talk first. Remember that his topics of conversation are more important than yours. <laughs> this was Hillary Clinton who wrote this. <laughs> Sorry, Democrats. That's a joke. Just a joke. Just a joke. Never complain if he comes home late or he goes out to dinner or entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his need to relax. And all the men said... Amen. <laughs> you would find me in the fireplace probably. Okay, I'm, t- I'm talking this morning about radical, about being radical. That was a radical article. It's funny, in the first service, there was, there's more older people, and they didn't laugh as much because I think they remember how that used to be. I was like, wow, laugh, this is supposed to be funny. Um, the word radical in its most basic form means extreme, and that housekeeping article was extreme. This morning in Exodus chapter 2, we're going to look at a great mom. In fact, a mom that played a role in raising, helped raise one of the greatest leaders uh, in the Bible, Moses. Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to build everything around the word radical because the, the call in this story for your life and my life is to be radical as a mom and as a person. Let's begin with this. We need to radically obey God. We need to radically obey God. What do you mean, what, what I mean by radically? Well, Compared to how other people in your world obey God, you obeying God may be very radical. Compared to how you're obeying God at this point in your life, it may be radical. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Wow. Is that not incredible? The Pharaoh was the king. And now listen, this is very important. He wasn't just the king. A lot of people in Egypt considered him a god. So this is a supreme leader. And when it says he gave an order, an order means a command, a superior to inferior. But this isn't like your boss telling you to take the trash out. This is a guy that's got complete and total authority and power 
telling you to do something. The, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were slaves in Egypt. They'd become too powerful. They were a threat to the Egyptians. He had been told, uh, uh, the Pharaoh had told the midwives, the ones delivering the babies, to kill the little baby Hebrew boys when they were born, and they wouldn't do it. And now he's telling all the Hebrew people, when you have a baby born and it's a boy, kill it. Literally, some scholars say that to throw it in the river meant to put it in a basket, let it sink in the river because the basket would sink if it wasn't waterproof. And that way, by letting the baby sink in a basket, it might not seem as brutal, if you can imagine, than just picking it up and chunking it into the river. Wow. The midwives didn't do it. The midwives wouldn't. Now, here we are in chapter 2. Well, that's your context and your background. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. Now, Levi, later on, this is going to be where the priests come from. At this point, they're not priests. It's just bringing, they're significant people. This is Moses' mom and daddy. They're not named in this story. They're named later. It's Amram and Jochebed uh, are the mom and dad. Strange name for a mama. Verse 2, the woman became pregnant. And gave birth to a son. This was going to be her third child. She had a, uh, uh, this is Moses. She had an, an older daughter named Miriam. We'll see in this story. And an older son we know later named Aaron. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him for three months. Doesn't every mama think their kid's special? My kid's special. Some of you are adults and you look in the mirror and you think, I'm special. I'm, we're not talking about narcissism here. Uh, th- and this wasn't like the special baby. This was like, they looked at him and th- this kid was healthy. He was apparently a happy, jovial little baby. Uh, th- and, and she may have sensed in her spirit something was different about him. And she kept him hidden for three months. Last week we had a baby dedication. How many of you were in this service last week? With the, we had 23 babies on the stage. You don't keep them quiet for long, do you? And so she knew she could hide the baby for three months, and then that was going to be about it. Uh, it says, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in a basket and laid it among the reeds along the Nile River. We will Right there, that doesn't look like she should get mother of the year, does it? She put her baby in a, a river. Let's take a, a, a look at the Nile River. The Nile River is the longest river in the world. And it's the one thing it's known for is crocodiles. We'll go back to that uh, in, in just a second. The bottom line is she'd been told by the king who was a god to kill her baby. And you say, well, they didn't have as much of the Bible as we have today, but they, Moses, Noah was told in Genesis chapter 9 and 10 that taking lives, and from the very beginning we know in Genesis chapter 4, taking an innocent life was wrong. An unborn or a newborn baby are about as innocent as they can get. She had a decision to make. Was she going to obey the king, the pharaoh, the ultimate authority, the little G-O-D of Egypt? Or was she going to obey God? And here's the choice she made. She said, you know what? I'm going to obey God. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 21. This, this is kind of even gets a little bit more of the story started. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Now, the midwives were the ones responsible for helping these Jewish ladies have their babies. They acted kind of like we would think of an OBGYN during this era. And 
they had been told before this, this last command to throw the babies in the rivers, they had been told to kill the little boys when they were born. They refused. They refused to obey the Pharaoh because they feared God. The word fear means they had a reverence and an awe and a respect for God. Now, listen, there's a balance in the New Testament of, of our love for God, dispelling fear, but you need a healthy fear of God. You need a reverence of God. You need to know that God can smack you down if he needs to smack you down. And if you're going to fear someone uh, more than God, you're in a bad position. You need to fear God first. And those midwives made the choice. They respected, feared, and were going to honor and obey God even above the Pharaoh or the king. I want to tell you, mamas and everyone here, you need to obey God first. Does that mean that you should ever disobey the law to obey God? Absolutely. Now, not like we do, like speeding and things like that. Francis Schaeffer was a, uh, a philosopher and a theologian. Francis Schaeffer said one time, he goes, at some point in your life, if you're not willing to disobey the government, if you have to, that means the government is your God and Jesus is not your God. Have you ever thought about that? Folks, I think in our country, we're about this far away from maybe having to disobey the government on some issues. When the government comes in conflict with the Word of God and the principles of God, you obey God. That's radical, but you do. Now, see, for most of us right now, it's not the government we're dealing with. You know the number one barrier to you obeying God is you and me. You know, my wife doesn't put up a fight with me. My dogs will go anywhere I want them to go. They're happy. Uh, the government's not in my business right now. You know, the biggest barrier for me following God is me. The biggest barrier for many of you is Y-O-U. Now, I know you have a lot of other excuses and other people you point fingers at. The biggest barrier to you doing what's right oftentimes is God. Here's just another barrier, other people, other people. You see, we look at our young people and we say, don't be peer pressured by those in your age group. But you know what I found out? When I was 25, a lot of my friends and myself, we're paying a lot of attention to what our friends think. And then at 45, it's the same way. And you know what? I'm going to tell you, at the nursing home today, there are people not doing things because they don't want to look silly in front of their nursing home friends. Peer pressure doesn't just happen when, when you get older or just younger. There was a lady, I read this story this week. She got pulled over. She was in a big city. She got pulled over by a policeman. And, and, and normally, unless you're taking somebody to the hospital, speeding is breaking the law, and that's wrong. That's not a, okay, you know, preacher said I could disobey the law. No, 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 we're talking about following God and disobeying. So she gets pulled over, and, and she tells the officer, she said, look, I'm, I, I was just keeping up with the traffic flow. How many of you do that? And here's what you'll say. Well, if I slow down, I'll get run over, right? I'm just keeping up with the traffic flow. That's what she said. And he, he said, well, ma'am, you're going 75 and a 55. She said, well, so is everybody else. He said, I don't care about everybody else. I pulled you over, and I'm giving you a ticket. He said, that's the same way with God. God's not looking at your situation or your story this morning or my situation or my story this morning. He goes, oh, shucks. Well, their friends are doing it. Their friends aren't committed. Their, their, their friends are, are half-hearted. Their friends are doing this or that. God's looking at you and me, and he's saying, I want you to radically extreme, especially compared to the world, ourselves, maybe, and what other people are doing. I want you to radically obey me. That means you've got to align your life with God's standards and God's principles. Let me repeat that. If I'm going to obey God, I've got to align my life 
not with my traditions, my beliefs, what some preacher says, what I read in some book. I've got to align my life to God and his word and his standards, correct? 1914, the Titanic sank, and that's the, the, sh- that, that's the one almost everybody would recognize. You talk about a famous uh, shipwreck at sea, you think about the Titanic. That same year in America, there was a famous trial you never hear about. It was two steamships off the coast of Virginia that ran together at night, the Nantucket and the Monroe. The Nantucket was at fault. 41 people died in this crash. But again, it didn't get much play because the Titanic overshadowed it. When it went to court, the captain of the Nantucket was on the the witness stand being grilled by the lawyers. And they asked him, why did you veer in and hit this ship that evening, he said, I don't know. I was following my compass. I was following my compass. And, and, and they began to talk to him, and he admitted, he said this, well, I knew my compass was off two degrees. The guys who had captained the ship before me knew it was off two degrees. It was a known fact that our compass that we guided the ship on was off two degrees, but it had never mattered in the past that our compass was off. We just sailed on anyway. But on a foggy night, A foggy night, dark night, 41 people died because he was following a faulty compass. See, many of us are sincere. Many of us say, well, I'm doing what I feel I should do. You know, God's not going to judge you on your feelings. Do you know that? Well, I'm doing what other people are doing or what they tell me to do. Or I'm doing what I see the world doing. Radical moms, radical parents, effective moms, effective parents are willing to obey God completely and totally. Radical obedience is the first thing. Here's the second thing. Radical obedience takes radical trust. It takes radical trust. You know, these two go absolutely together. You cannot separate these two. In chapter 1, verse 21 again, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. They, they were doing something that would cost them their lives. Chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket, made it papyrus reeds, waterproofed it with tar and pitch, put the baby in the basket, laid it in the reeds, in the river. Think about this. Let me ask you today, if you knew obeying God could potentially cost you your life, are you willing to do that? If you knew obeying God meant that you were going to have to make some hard decisions that you don't want to make, are you willing to do it? You see, the only way you're going to obey God like you should is if you trust God. Hebrews eleven twenty three. listen to what it says thousands of years later. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child. Many of your parents said the same thing. <laughs> and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. But you go back to the very first of that verse, it was by faith that they did this because of their faith and their trust in God. Let me tell you something. I don't know what your personal situation is. Most of you, but I know this, if not today, some of you right now are facing decisions that you need to obey God. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to, it's not going to be what you want to do. You've got to trust that God knows what's right and God's going to take care of you. 
Let me, let me ask you this. How many of you believe God knows what's right? I mean, that's a silly question in church, isn't it? You believe it, but you don't believe it enough to act on it, right? <laughs> See, I'll, I'll sit and talk theology with you, and I'll tell you God is in control. God's all-powerful, Romans eight twenty-eight. But, you know, it's tough when I've got to step out and obey him, isn't it? Absolutely. And the only way that you and I will obey God in our marriages, in our relationships, at work, in our friendships, how we handle our money, the only way we're going to do it, and by the way, all of Christianity comes down to obedience. If you don't obey God, God's not interested in how much you know. God's interested in how much you obey him. It, obeying God's going to come down to how much you're going to trust God. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you trust God enough to obey him? Do you trust, bigger question, do you trust God enough with the consequences of your obedience? See, they were willing to say, if this costs me my life to save those babies, I'm going to obey God. Do you trust God enough to obey him? Radical obedience is what God needs. Listen, what your, your kids need this morning is they need moms and dads who are going to obey God. And if that's going to happen, you're going to have to trust God in some big ways. God's going to push you more and more to obedience and to trust him. Let me give you a third thing. You've got to be willing to give a radical effort to. Now, see, here's how it all fits together. So I'm going to obey God. God's got, some of you right now, God's got his finger on your heart on some issue. And he's telling you, this is what you need to do. Or he's going to next week or he's going to in two months. And you go, I've got to trust God. Okay, you do have to trust God. But then eventually you've got to act on what God is telling you to do. You've got to act on it. That's where the obedience is fleshed out and, and where it's seen. Most of us are lazy. Would you agree with that? Most of us are lazy after God, but most of us are lazy. Several years ago, a guy named Jeff Miller won a contest. Now, they may still be doing this in Chicago. It was called the Couch Potato of the Year. How many of you think you know someone that you could enter in that? Might not be a bad contest. They, they were doing it at the, the Chicago's ESPN studio. And what they did, and of course, it was obviously, I think it was all men, and must have been men who did not have a heavy work schedule, because they came down there, they put them in a room, they put them in recliners. All they did was watch sports TV constantly. They were given pizza and food to eat. They were allowed to get up every, uh, uh, for five minutes, once an hour, to go to the bathroom, do whatever they need to do. And the winner was the one who could stay in that recliner and stay awake the longest watching sports TV. Jeff Miller stayed awake for 72 straight hours and won $1,000 and a brand-new recliner. Isn't that uh, fitting for the couch potato of the year? Uh, you know, a lot of us are couch potatoes when it comes to God, but Moses' mother was not. Verse 3, when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds. I think we have a basket. Let's look at a basket. That's a, it looks almost like a miniature ark, doesn't it? A papyrus reed basket. Now, what she did with this was different. She waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She made it where this basket would float. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. Now, again, this does not seem like mother of the year, does it? Nile River has crocodiles. Let's take a picture of a crocodile. That is alligator's ugly cousin. Is that not a, that is a vicious looking animal, isn't it? 
And so, okay, you know, when I'm reading this story and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, boy, you're talking about a step of faith or either a step of idiocy, I'm not sure. But you notice it said a couple of things here. She, she made it where the basket would not sink. It said she put it in the reeds. The reeds were basically what you would think. It was places near the shore where you had shoots and things sticking out. That did a couple of things. One, it kept the basket from floating down the river. It gave it a little shade if it was going to be there for very long. And, and the next thing, crocodiles didn't hang out in the reeds. They couldn't maneuver well. Crocodiles were more in the open area. Now, in verse 4, we continue on. It says, the baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. Now, I believe all this is orchestrated. And, and I love this story for a thousand reasons. The princess is going to come bathe here in a moment. This is obviously a safe part of the river or a branch of the river. There's not a lot of crocodiles. Moses' mama obeyed God. She had to trust God big time. But then she didn't just sit on her hands and whine. She didn't get on Facebook and complain. I don't think Facebook was big in Egypt at that point, but just saying. We have no record of her pulling her hair out and making excuses. Instead, when the time came, Moses' dad, by the way, is not mentioned in any of this story at this point. She makes this basket. She waterproofs the basket. She sets the basket in the place where the princess is going to come. She must know that. And I believe she has her daughter strategically there to make sure that the baby is okay. In other words... As simple as this may sound or as hard as this may sound, she didn't hide behind, I'm going to pray about it, I'll think about it, I'll let God lead me, which you should do all those things. She got up and she got with it. Let me, let me tell you something this morning. There's a time when you pray and wait. And you should always be praying. But there's a time when you've got to get up and you've got to act. You've got to quit saying, I'm going to try to do what's right. I'm going to start doing it later. I'm going to do this or do that when the time comes. You've got to say, the time to do right is today. The time to do right is today. And with the help of God, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to act. Obedience is always going to be seen in what you do, not on what you suggest or what you hope to do. It's going to be seen in what you do. These go hand in glove. I obey. I trust and I act. That's exactly what she did. In your situation, some of you, it's time to act. It's time to do the right thing. It's time to quit doing the wrong thing, start doing the right thing, and to make the decision, whatever God's leading you to do, that you're going to start doing it. Quit complaining, quit hiding, quit making excuses, and say with the grace and the power of God, I'm going to act. Listen, you don't get any more spiritual than that, obeying, trusting, and doing. It's radical, but that's what great moms do, and that's what great people are called to do. Here's the last thing where it all comes together. There are radical consequences at stake. You see, what you do with these things, how you obey God, is going to have a tremendous impact on you and a lot of other people. Your obedience is going to be birthed from your trust and your behavior. What you do is going to matter, and it is going to matter tremendously, tremendously, tremendously. In verse 5, 
Soon Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe. Again, I don't think she would have been bathing in a crocodile-infested part of the river. Her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying. She felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children. The baby's sister approached the princess. I think this was part of the strategy. Should I go find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, the princess replied. She called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told her. I will pay you and help you. So the woman took the baby home and nursed him. Verse 10, let's look at that. Later when the boy was older, he was brought back to Pharaoh's daughter, adopted him as his own And the princess named him Moses, which means I drew him out of the water. Think of God's sense of humor here. Here's a lady who obeys God, having no idea what the consequence is going to be. Took a lot of faith. She steps out and she does it. The princess sees, and we believe this may have been a lady who eventually became the queen of Egypt. She sees the baby. She takes the baby. She wants him. She knows he needs to be nursed. It wasn't uncommon then, and even 100 years ago, to hire someone else to nurse your baby. Moses' mom gets to nurse her own son. Isn't that cool? She was supposed to kill him. Now it's legal for her to have him because she has him for the king's daughter. He gets raised in this wonderful, apparently wonderful religious house, three to six years probably, and then he goes and he lives in the palace. We are told that he is raised as a prince. He, he is educated in the best education. He's educated in military strategy, rhetoric, literature, languages, everything. And then 80 years from now, he's going to, or 40, 50, 60 years from now, he's going to come back and God's going to use this baby boy to free the slaves, his people, from the most powerful country in the world, lead them to walk around the desert for 40 years and to, to take care of them, to get the Ten Commandments from God and to put a lot of it down on paper. Wow. And he was perfectly qualified to do that because his mom obeyed God and trusted and acted. Wow. All the greatness of Moses can be traced back to a mom who did the right things. I want to ask you this morning, do do you think the consequences of what you do are important? Let let me tell you, you're going to eat from the fruit you plant. You you don't live a certain way, act a certain way, raise your family a certain way, and and, and then you you get something. You know, I plant tomatoes, and then you're all mad because you're not eating strawberries. You're, you're goofy. You know, are you planting beets for whatever reason? You're going to eat beets, and they're going to be terrible, in my personal opinion. And so you wonder, why, why are my kids this way? Why is my, my family this way? Make the corrections now. Try to turn things around. You're going to eat the fruit that you plant. You're going to reap what you've sown. You, and, and, and it doesn't matter how old you are, you can turn these things around. You know, the the term helicopter parent is a a common term today. It's kind of used to parents who hover over their kids, hover over the coaches, hover over the teachers, hover over the youth minister, and and they're always smarter than the coaches, teachers, and youth ministers. And, you know, it's an international, it's not just an American problem. A a guy in Norway called this hyper-parenting, you know, where the parent is is kind of, again, helicopters over the kid. Let me give you a better parenting style. Man, you obey God. 
Obey God. Trust God. Obey God. Do the right things. Get up and go and do the right things and leave the consequences with God. That's what Moses' mother did, and it worked out pretty well, didn't it? That's what's at stake for you and for me. Columbia University, New York City, they did a survey, study of people for years, and here's what they found out. The average person makes 70 decisions a day. Now, that's incredible, isn't it? Now, that could be as frivolous as, you know, pickles or onions to more serious things. 70 decisions a day, which means if you live to be 70, you would make close to 1.8 million decisions in your life. A man named Camus was a, a French philosopher, and he said this. He goes, our lives are the sum totals of the choices we make. There's a lot of truth to that. But I'll even throw this in here. Your kids, your spouse, your family are going to be a sum total of a lot of the choices you make too. So I want to challenge you today to make some radical decisions trusting, doing, and obeying God. Let's pray. This morning, if you're a Christian, I'm going to call you to some things in just a moment, but I pray God speaking to your heart about what you need to do and what you need to do with Him. If you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you where you're seated. If you're ready to do this, if you're ready to cross this line with Christ, pray with me and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to turn from my sins. Jesus, I accept your God's Son and that you died and that you arose for me. Come into my heart, Jesus. And I surrender my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Let me have your attention. We're going to stand in a second, and when we do, I want to challenge you to respond to Christ. Maybe you just prayed and asked Christ in your heart, or maybe you're ready to do it. You stand and you come today. I know it's radical. I know it's hard, but make that decision. Maybe you're here today and you'd like to join our church family. You can do it after church or you can come when we stand to sing. We'd love for you to. Might be a huge decision and a great decision for your family. Obey God if he's telling you to do that. Christian, maybe where you're standing or at the altar, you need to come back to God. You need to make the radical decision to obey and trust God the rest of your life. Let's do that. The stakes are really high. Let's stand. God leads you. We'll be waiting on you. You come.